But this morning we're going to continue on this uh, grand theme of new birth, new life, um, and talk about what I simply want to call total transformation. I basically stole this title. Uh, I think there's a health food program or exercise program out there called Total Transformation. It kind of hit me this week as I was searching for a title. I thought, well, the true total transformation is what the Lord is doing within us that begins at baptism. Uh, we are being transformed um, every day into the image of Christ, and it's a day that, uh, or an exercise that goes from our spiritual birth, which is baptism, all the way to the day of our death when we meet our Maker. Uh, and it never ends. And we're going to talk more about this morning as we talk about what God is looking for. And that's where uh, these lessons will continue to go. What God is looking for, because He's seeking to more than forgive us. He has to forgive us just to get us started, just to get us off the ground. He has to wipe clean our path. But He begins at that point to set us on a new path, where He seeks to work on what we'll talk about today a lot is our new self. Um, and this is simply the powerful but yet beautiful change from darkness to light. I mentioned last week how that our change is very similar to a caterpillar changing to a butterfly, and I spent some time this week looking at, looking at YouTube videos of uh, time-lapse photography of a caterpillar being turned into a butterfly, and, and do that. It's amazing. Because caterpillars are kind of creepy little creatures. Um, if one, somebody put one on you, you'd probably want to flick it off real quick. Some are really fuzzy. Uh, I think kids would think something really gross landed on them, or even the beautiful ones, the more beautiful caterpillars. I probably wouldn't feel that comfortable with it walking on me. But as it begins the creator's process of converting into a butterfly, to, it's a very unusual transformation. And clearly it's kind of difficult. You're not sure what's going to come out yet. before. Uh, but once a butterfly does emerge, the butterfly is truly amazing. There's so many beautiful, beautiful butterflies. And this illustration parallels what God is looking for in us because at the time that we're baptized, we're not that beautiful. Uh, the song says, just as I am, <laughs> without one plea. Uh, that is true. Someone recognized when they wrote that beautiful hymn that God takes us as we are, but the thing that's so sure is He doesn't leave us there. He does not leave us where we are, and He does not for us to stay where we were the day that we're baptized. But we made commitments to Him. Uh, Peter said in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't just be baptized and be forgiven, but repent. That means you've got to change your ways. And there has to be a, a commitment to change when we're baptized, but that commitment goes on throughout our life. Where we go from being a spiritual caterpillar. Not that pleasant to look at, not that pleasant to be around, to something very beautiful where even in death people will take caterpillars and they'll put them inside beautiful glass or acrylic boxes to look at because their beauty remains. Uh, so this morning we're going to look at this idea of total transformation. And in Romans 6 we'll revisit it. And I want to see this principle that we've been looking at. That is we are called to new life. And this new life is not only a new life that we're called to the day that we're baptized and the moment we're baptized, but even if we've been in the faith 50 years, even if we've been serving God well into our 60s and our 70s, 80s, and with many members into their 90s, 
No members here, by the way. But uh, there are members throughout the uh, planet that are in their 90s, and they have the same obligation as those who are newborns in the faith, or what we used to call babes in Christ, as Peter talks about, as babes in Christ desire the spiritual milk of the Word. We're always growing. In fact, some of our greatest challenges in life are when we are older in the faith. So uh, all of these texts have equal applicability. But let's look again at this idea of new life. We won't read the entire text of verses 1 through 13 because we did that last week, but we will highlight these four verses. Notice how Paul, as he speaks to the Romans, people have already been baptized, and they have been for quite some time. He speaks to them as if they were just baptized. Let's just highlight the verses that talk about new life. Verse 4, he says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may what? Live a new life. That we may too live a new life. So here we find one of many glimpses, if not outright panoramic pictures in Scripture, of what our purpose is. That is to live a new life. Scripture does not entertain the idea of a shined-up life. That is, your old life is just kind of shined up. Uh, with me as someone who loves older cars, I spend a lot of time shining up older parts, trying to make them look better. But they're not the same as a brand-new part. Uh, but in Christ, we have a brand-new life. We've been given new life. We also see here that we now live for God. Look at verse 10. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Here we find in this new life that we have, we're not just our old person trying to be a better self. We're not trying to be just a better version of ourselves. We have this brand new life and it belongs to God. It says here that we live to God. We have a distinctive spiritual identity. And that our identity goes beyond our gender, beyond our race, beyond our social class, beyond our citizenship. All of our identity, as far as things that we consider from a physical standpoint and a social standpoint, takes a back seat to our spiritual identity. Even our relationship to a spouse or to a parent, our children, all takes a second position to our relationship with God. We belong to Him and to no one else. We don't belong to our work. We don't belong to any recreation or sport. We might be 49ers fans, but we don't belong to that team. And if they don't start playing better, we for sure don't belong to them. But you um, need to understand that our identity is wrapped up in who we are as we belong to God. Verse 11 now, we see that we're alive to God. Verse 11, it says, In the same way, count yourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Just consider that powerful statement for a moment. Count yourselves as dead to sin. When we're baptized, that old person stays buried. And it will try to have a resurrection experience the rest of our lives. That old person will try to come back. It's always trying to come up out of the grave. And maybe we ought to think about that as we're now in the middle of Halloween. I mean, in humor, we talk about people 
coming out of the graves? Well, with Satan, that's what he's trying to do spiritually. Bring us back, uh, back out of the grave. Trying to bring the old person back to life. But here it says, we count ourselves as dead to sin, and we believe the old person ought to stay buried. And part of our fight all of our life is trying to push the old person back into the grave. Because that old person liked living <laughs> and walking around and haunting us. That old person liked doing what it wanted to do or liked a comfortable life, and it wants to come back. But we now find ourselves dead to sin, but he says, alive to God. The Christian life is not just trying to be dead to sin all the time. But instead, we are dead to sin as well as being alive to God. We have this new description where Scripture says we are alive. Earlier, or and elsewhere, I should say, in Ephesians, Paul said you were once dead. Uh, we were basically zombies, spiritual zombies, and I don't like any of those zombie movies or TV shows. I have no use for those. But if there's one redeeming value, is as awful as those zombies look, they're walking dead people. And that's kind of how God saw us before coming to Him. We're a bunch of dead people running around. But He says, you were once dead, and you're now dead to sin, but you're alive to God. We're made alive. Brand new people. Brand new people that belong to God. We received a spiritual heart transplant. Just as someone receives a physical heart plant transplant so they might live, we've received a spiritual one. We have this new life and we're to live it out. But it's going to look very different in all of us as we take on a new life. With some who have lived a life deeply involved in sin, it's going to be a massive transformation, not only to them, but to other people. People like the prodigal son who people knew they went and ate with the pigs and they lived a life that was very profligate and they had the stains of those sins still on them and they're dealing with addictions and they're dealing with uh, living out the consequences of choices they've made in the past and even their appearance might be affected by the way they used to live. They're still alive to God, but their new life to them is dramatically different, not only in the choices they have to make every day to fight some of the battles of things of the past, it's going to be very visible to other people. And, and it's easy to take uh, great spiritual pride in those who have made giant leaps from visible death to now visible life. But sometimes the conversion from old life to new life is not so visible. Some people come to Christ being very religious people. In the book of Acts chapter 10, a man by the name of Cornelius sought out the gospel. And he was someone who was already generous in his giving. He was very dedicated uh, to helping out the Jewish people. He made sure that he could hear the gospel preached by Peter. Very devout person, but still an unsaved person. And probably after his baptism, his life on the outside may not have looked a whole lot different. But a lot of times with people, they're very religious. When they come to true faith in Christ, a lot of the challenges are challenges you don't see when they take on a new life. Satan tries to ruin even our goodness. Sometimes people are involved in good because they want to see their name on a building one day, because they've get, given a lot of money. Uh, they always make sure that other people see them giving. They don't want to give if someone, they don't want to tip unless someone sees they tipped. Um, they take great pride when they watch the news. Uh, 
Because, man, you can't help but look better. After you watch the news, because you've just seen every bad thing that you've seen other people can do to other people, and you start feeling pretty good about yourself. And a lot of times the challenge of religious people is a sense of self-sufficiency. That I'm already better than everybody else, and so I was going to get to heaven on that basis, but now I'm for sure going because Jesus kind of sealed the deal. And that problem is just as bad as someone that's addicted to alcohol, and they're trying to break free of it trying to break free of our own sense of self-sufficiency, that we're better than other people, we're, we've done good in our life, we're always doing good things, we're nice, we tell people in the grocery line, oh, you go ahead, you go ahead, and we've, oh, just, we can feel so good about ourselves just being decent human beings that we don't really see conversion as that big of a step. But when we take on new life, whether it's the Philippian jailer who probably had a very wild life, or Cornelius, both lives are brand new. And one thing that's true about new life is we go on to the next point. A Christian will never struggle with what their life is all about. Because whether you're someone that comes to Christ as deeply religious already, or deeply sinful, your life is all about how can my life look exactly how God wants it to look whether it be taking on my sense of self-sufficiency and self-pride and overwhelming goodness and feeling good about that or overcoming these overt sins, I have a mission to be alive for God. And you don't have to worry. Christians don't have to worry about what's going to happen. Do I have to have a bucket list? Do I have to, to do a lot of things at the end of my life? Do I have to give my life meaning? Your life has meaning instantly. Once you're baptized into Christ every moment, when you wake up or every moment when you go to bed at night, your life has purpose and meaning and there's always something to do in the realm of serving God. You're always a work in progress in your marriage, in your work relationships, as a child that's baptized into Christ. You always have something to do that defines who you are. So it's a beautiful life. It's a challenging life, but it's a beautiful life to live this new life that we're called to. And I don't want to be called to anything different. We have no reason to exist. We may as well eat, drink, and be merry if we abandon this new life. And you may as well live the lifestyle of the rich and famous and live it up because there's no reason to live and, and spend it all while you're here because there's nothing after this life if these things are not true. But new life shapes everything. Well, what is God looking for exactly? Let's go on to our second point. To look at this new life we're called to has to involve putting off the old self, which is a major battle. Because the old self that said it would be buried at baptism wants to come back to life even before you've dried off after being baptized. That's how quickly the old temptations, the old sins, the old way of life comes back. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to see here the combination of Paul addressing putting off the old self and what that looks like and then putting on the new self. And a good illustration of this is what has to be done with any new construction especially done in a very crowded, congested area like San Francisco. There is no big, vacant parcels of land in San Francisco to erect new buildings. You have to get rid of old buildings. 
So there has to be blasting before there's building. And some of my favorite videos on YouTube are to see like old uh, coliseums, football stadiums that have now aged out and they have to put dynamite everywhere and then they blow them up so they can simply carry off all the old stuff and build a brand new building right there. And that's essentially what's happening in Christ. There's some blasting that has to be done before the new building can start. So the idea of repentance is you're blasting away at the old stuff to try to keep it from coming back. Let's see the blasting. Just think the word blasting in verse 17 through verse 24. Paul says to the Christians in Ephesus, he says, So I tell you this, verse 17, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they are full of greed. Verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to what? Put off. Put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. All right, let's look at the blasting that was done here. And it's some extensive blasting. You ever notice when these old stadiums are, or old um, high-rise buildings are uh, destroyed and brought down, they have to put all the blasting materials in just the right spot. Because some of these videos show that they didn't do it completely, and that building fell halfway. Or that half of the stadium kind of blew up, the other half remained untouched. This is a complete demolition of the old self. He says in verse 17, so I tell you this, and then he says, in case someone thinks he's joking, and, on, and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Gentiles were basically non-Jewish people. Most of the early converts to Christianity were Jewish, but as the Jewish people saw it, a Gentile and their life was synonymous with just a wild life of sin. So he uses that accommodative language that you no longer live like the Gentiles live, and they knew exactly what he meant. You no longer live just for yourself, just trying to have fun and entertain yourself and living for pleasure. And he goes on in verses 17 through 20 to describe all the ways that someone that's just living for themselves lives. He says, futility of thinking, verse 17, darkened in understanding, separated from the life of God. There's ignorance that's in them, hardening of heart, 
They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They are full of greed. Sounds a lot like today. You don't have to look too far to see this. But he says that's how you no longer live. He says in verse 20, this is not the way you learned how to live in Christ. Again, these people have already been baptized, but apparently the old person is resurrecting itself somewhat. Or he's making sure the old person stays buried. He says, you did not learn about Christ this way. Instead, verse 22, he says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. Put off does not mean make friends with it. <laughs> does not mean you try to hang on to the old parts of yourself that you liked. But you put off. It's like taking old, off old clothes and just get rid, getting rid of them, throwing them away. With our old clothes in Christ, we don't put them in the closet to be worn at another time or to be saved because we cherish that old way of life. But instead, we put off those old clothes and put on brand new clothes. And this is our challenge because sometimes it's hard for us to figure out exactly what God is looking at. He's not saying you put off your personality. There's some personalities that are very quiet and like to listen. Uh, they're not outgoing. They're not party people. They're not the first to run into a group of people and start talking. They're kind of quiet and subdued. Introverts, we, we kind of call them. Not that they don't say anything, but they're kind of quiet and reserved and very sensitive and thoughtful and everything. That's our personality. Or sometimes people have an extrovertish personality where they love to talk. They love to be around people. They don't like being by themselves. That part stays. God is never trying to change your personality. Our personality is kind of what we were born with. and we, we, didn't, we didn't inherit sin from our parents. We did not. But we did inherit personality traits, I believe. Just like we inherit physical traits, we inherit inside traits. Because someone says, well, you're just like your mother. Well, that's what your mother would say. They're kind of pointing out our personality things. Ah, that's your dad talking. Uh, those things, part of it's what we learned growing up, but I think part of it we kind of parents recognize from early years, we have personality traits. God never tries to change that. But if our personality starts taking on sinful characteristics, like if someone who loves being gregarious and they love being the storyteller and they love the attention that comes from telling a good yarn, and uh, but they start embellishing that. Well, 10 years ago, I traveled in India and I because they know no one else can verify that story, and they want to have a good story all the time. Or they want to have some good gossip. They want to have some good stuff about the neighbor, and they start adding to that. Then their personality that loves attention has gone to the dark side to begin a path of falsehood that God says that does have to be put off. Keep being a storyteller. People love that. People love someone that's full of life and energy and loves to talk. But don't allow Satan to control that to where now you're making up things or you're lying or you're saying things hurtful about people because you know you have an audience for that. Putting off the old self gets rid of old character flaws, not your personality. Putting off the old stuff means getting rid of old character flaws. Things that a lot of times we know already aren't good for us. 
The liar tends to know that these lies may catch up with them one day. Or they feel guilty after telling a bunch of things that really weren't true about things they've done, and they just hope no one verifies. So the beauty of coming to Christ is a lot of times we're getting rid of a lot of old baggage that we knew was not healthy for us anyway. We're putting off the old self. Even if it's a deeply religious old self. Uh, a lot of times deeply religious people, when they come to Christ, the number one thing they have to put off is feeling and acting holier than thou. Uh, the old Saturday Night Live used to have a skit involving what they called the church lady. It was a man dressed up as a woman. He was just very snooty and always making judgmental things. Ricardo, you remember that? Yeah, and, but it kind of parodied it because there was an element of truth to that. It was funny. Where someone who was deeply religious was also very deeply judgmental. And there's no bigger turnoff or excuse for non-believers not to be believers than running into judgmental Christians who are holier than thou. And that is the biggest temptation of deeply religious people because in many ways you are. You're not battling a lot of the battles other people have, but now you're battling spiritual pride and you don't even know about it. Instead of recognizing ourselves as a servant of Christ and we walk humbly as forgiven people, we tend to think, well, now we're better than other people because in many ways it looks better, we present as better, we don't have some of the struggles that people with deep sins have and things like that, but we're just as sinful in God's eyes. God is not looking for holier-than-thou people. He doesn't want a spiritual smugness in His churches. He wants a humble people. Putting off the old self is a lifelong work. You're always checking on yourself. Did I do the right thing? Was it good that I said that? And sometimes it's difficult. This last week, um, I was in my classroom, had what's called a prep period. It's a period I don't teach, but another teacher has his class in the classroom. And a student came in from the hallway that had a bathroom pass where he was just supposed to go to the bathroom and back. And he decided to stop off and see some friends in this class, but he was being very disruptive. And there were some kids in there that were taking a test, and the instructional aide was getting very frustrated with this kid that had come into class and was disruptive the students that were supposed to be taking a test. And I was kind of seeing what was going on from my office that has windows, and internally I was getting a little upset. And then finally she got upset, the instructional aide, and she came in, Mr. Mulligan, can you help get this student out of the classroom? By then I was kind of mad because I saw what was going on. And as I escorted this student out, I had a choice set of words for him. How come you're acting? And I didn't use the worst of words, but I used a word I don't really use that much, but it's a little intense. And I realized later, and he, he was all, as he walked off, he was compliant. But I didn't realize, I realized I didn't really like the language I used with him. Not profanity, but just disrespectful word. The next day I found him, because it bothered me all day and all night. I've got I to make this right. And uh, also we teachers don't want our cars keyed later on by a very angry student in the parking lot <laughs> that we could never find on the video. So we have good motivation to make things right with students if we've crossed the line. So I brought this student in and, and I said, hey, I just want to tell you, I know what, know what happened yesterday. I want to tell you first that I apologize for the language I used with you because it wasn't appropriate for me to use with you as a student 
and he was like shocked I was doing that. Teachers don't do this. And uh, I go, you were still out of line in what you're doing in the class. I want to make that clear. Why? You were still out of line, but I'm making it clear that what I said wasn't right. So we made up, shook hands. He was fine. We were good. He was very happy. I felt better. But that took a little work on my part. I don't like apologizing to students for things I said. They apologize to me for things they've said. Uh, things like that. That's the way it's supposed to work. But that's what the Christian life is like. You're always, when you recognize your conscience and Scripture comes together and... Uh, You've got to correct something or fix something or work on something. That's what our life always looks like. It's about doing what's right. Doing what's right. Going back and at times often, yeah. Correcting things. Yeah. 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 It's hard. It's hard. It's hard to do it. It's hard for me. But as part of a person with new life, I had to do it. And you felt better. Felt better. But I could tell my conscience is not going to let this go. Well, I do it, and I sure don't want my principal saying, Mr. Mulligan, you come see me, because this student said something to them. Um, so you have a lot of motivation uh, that helped me. But we're always growing. We're always looking to change, always correcting. It's like driving on the freeway. Basically, when you're driving on the freeway, you're always correcting. You're a little too far to the left, too far to the right. The Christian life is like that. We're putting off the old self. We're just about ready to go on to the new self for just a couple moments, but how do you... Get rid of the old self. First of all, you, you regulate your friendships. If you're around a bunch of old self people and you're trying to be a new self, but those old self people have a lot of power and influence, it's very hard. I say you regulate friendships. It doesn't mean you move off the planet. It doesn't mean you move to a deserted island, but you may have to move away a little bit from people or regulate the times where they're a bad influence on you. Uh, connect to committed Christians that model what you want to be, the model proper communication, pure relationships, proper entertainment. Be around people that model what you know you need to work on. That helps spending time in prayer, asking God to help you, deal with difficult things. Spending time in the Word of God where you're always seeing what God is looking for. That's part of putting off the old self. But now comes the new self. And the point is simply this, put on the new self. Look at verse 25. Let's see what the new self looks like. Verse 25 through chapter 5, verse 2. Ephesians 4. Paul says, verse 25, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. Verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Verse 28, those who have been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. Verse 29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, Rage and anger 
brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example. Therefore, dearly loved children, chapter 5, verse 2, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's just stop here and we'll look at what we just read. First of all, this is all about putting on the new self. Verse 23 said, we're made new in the attitude of our minds, and we put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. What does that look like? He describes it now in 25 through 5.2. First of all, it's a high calling. Verse 24 says we're created to be like God. We're going to explore this more in my next lesson. This is our calling. Not to be better than our neighbor. Not to be just a shined up version of our old self. But we are created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's a lifelong pursuit. There's qualities that God possesses that he wants us to possess as well. But also there's areas of very specific change. Let's look at them. Verse 25. He says, Therefore, each of you must put off what? Falsehood. You've been living a lie and speaking a lie. (laughs) You now have to live a life, or you're called to live, I should say, a life of integrity. So if you've been used to kind of lying to get out of a jam, whether it's lying to the government, or lying to a neighbor, or a friend about why you didn't show up on time, or things like that. If you've been used to lying and getting you out of situations, what does Paul say you have to do? You have to put off falsehood. Not just relegate yourself to little lies, but you put off all lies. Or if you've been a big storyteller with tall tales of things you never really did, but no one really knows whether or not you did it or not, you put that off. But he doesn't say you just tell, you put away all your stories. And the, the very fun storyteller, he's not saying, well, you just have to sit at home at night and you can't even talk anymore. No, that's not the point. He says here, you put off falsehood, but then you speak truthfully with your neighbor, true stories, and you don't lie to get out of a jam. You speak truthfully, for we are all members with one another. That's a life of integrity. There's a good chance that liars aren't really believed as much as they think other people are believing them. And people have learned to dismiss their tall tales. And they've learned to dismiss their lying because they know the truth. The liar just doesn't know they know the truth. But now you're building this life of integrity where if you're late one day, say, I'm sorry, I was late. I did not plan my time very well. You don't blame it on the traffic. You don't blame it on this or that or your work. You were late. And now all of a sudden people say, man, they're telling the truth now. I know why they're late. Or you tell tales, well, yeah, I just sat around Saturday. I didn't do anything. You don't make up stories about climbing Mount Everest anymore and things like that. You just, I didn't do anything. Wow, they're telling the truth now. Because I saw them. They, their car was there all day Saturday. Uh, now people want to be around you and they believe you. That's a life of integrity. You work on your emotions, verse 26. In your anger, he doesn't say you can't be angry. But he says, but in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. That means you don't haul off and hit somebody when you're angry. You don't give someone the silent treatment for three years in your anger. You don't shut off people because you're angry. He says, instead, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down. That is, you deal with your anger quickly. 
And do not give the devil a foothold. That means don't let Satan start controlling your anger where now you haul off and do things sinful or you give the silent treatment, which is simply anger turned upside down. <laughs> Spiritual pride. Well, I'm not, I didn't hit you, but I'm going to hit you emotionally by not talking to you. Same thing. You, met, you should have just hit them. At least you got it out of your system. You're dealing with it different now. Let's say you're someone that steals, verse 28. He says, those who have been stealing must what? Steal no longer. Don't just steal a little bit. Don't just steal some of the fruit at the Safeway. You just stop stealing the fruit. But then he says, but you must work. That you might start giving to other people. So instead of being a taker by stealing, now you work and you start giving to other people. For every sinful behavior, there's an exact opposite right behavior. For every sinful behavior, there's an exact opposite right behavior. You don't just stop stealing and you sit around. You stop stealing, now you get a job, and you take what extra you have and start giving it to others. Speech, verse 29. This is what I had to do this week. I knew this verse was there. I had to apply it. I knew I was preaching this Sunday. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. I used unwholesome talk with this student. But only what is helpful for building him up. I did not build him up with some of the language I used with him. I probably made him feel bad about himself. But what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. He needed to hear something better from me than what I said to him. That it might benefit those who listen. So instead of gossip, slander, speaking bad about people, compliment, encourage. Point out good. Even though there's a lot of bad you could point out, point out good about people. Encourage people. Your disposition, verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, every form of malice. But verse 32, be kind and compassionate. Forgiving each other. Just as Christ, in Christ God forgave you. As we conclude this morning, God doesn't want you just getting rid of sin and sitting around. He doesn't want you locking yourself in, in your house or apartment on Friday night. Because that's the only way you can stay out of sin. He wants you dealing with sin, but He wants you to taking on the opposite. Sin involves selfishness. The new life involves selflessness. How can I help somebody? Does someone need a ride? When I drive, am I letting people in instead of speeding up to close out the gap? Uh, am I helping my neighbors who know could use a, some form of help in some way, even if it's just a visit, a card, call, text? Those are the exact opposite behaviors. And once you start experiencing the joy of a selfless life, of doing good for others, helping, encouraging, it is very difficult for the old person to resurrect him or herself. Because you're enjoying this new life. I've heard of no one that's got a physical heart transplant ever saying, I would like that old heart back. No, you want to enjoy the new heart. And in the Christian life, you want to enjoy this new life. And you will as you start taking on the new life and what it looks like. And we'll explore that in a lesson to come even closer because it will be following the example of God. As we conclude today, this is a challenge. We are always a work in progress, whether 17 or 70. 
every age, every moment of your life, there will be a challenge you have to take on. There's never a point where you'll be coasting as a Christian, where you've arrived and you're just waiting for, waiting for the funeral because you're where you want to be. Satan's tempting you with everything that's age-related, everything that's personality-related, everything that's character-related. He's touching you all the time. Cradle to grave. I guarantee it. But God is there now with you, battling with you. He is on your side in this grand struggle to be faithful to Him, to live this new self. And it's a beautiful life. It's a beautiful life as it emerges. Not a trouble-free life, but it's beautiful. Because you're blessing other people rather than hurting them. You're living with a free conscience rather than one that's plagued by the guilt of all the things you keep doing that are left unaddressed. And I want no other life. I want no other life than the struggle to keep being who Christ died for. Whether it be with my students, my wife, my neighbors, or the people I'm going to contend with on 280 as I drive home. I want no other life than trying to act and think the right way that God called me to. May God bless us in this great challenge. We're going to sing a song now to encourage us to continue on this walk. It begins at baptism where our faith combines with submissiveness to God, where we have our sins washed away, committing to repent, to change the rest of our lives, all the things that God says need to be changed, and to take on this new life that He sent His Son to die for that He might allow us to grow into. And thankfully, our God is patient. We grow into this new life. And may we never give up on him because he will not give up on us.